True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 29, The Jeppy Pyromaniac. Before we get into today's case, before we get into today's case, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Lee Last, Carol Saul, and Daniel Funnevolt for their support through Patreon. It is hugely appreciated and really helps me to keep the podcast moving forward and growing. If you would like to support the show through Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing the episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on our social media platforms all helps to keep True Crime South Africa growing and improving. The case I chose to cover today is a serial killer case, but I hadn't heard about this case until I read Strangers on the Streets by Mickey Pistorius. Thankfully, this offender was caught before he managed to rack up the devastating victim counts that we often see in our serial killers. I thought this case would be interesting to cover, though, because the offender had a predilection which is rarely seen in the criminal world. He was a pyromaniac. Another interesting aspect that you'll hear about is that although the man to whom the crimes were attributed matched the profile that Mickey Pistorius had drawn up 100%. There was another man who also matched it just as well, and he too was a killer. As research for this case, I used two books by Mickey Pistorius, Strangers on the Street and Profiling Serial Killers and Other Criminals. I also used the sentencing document released by the judge when it went to trial, as well as a few media articles I found. There is very little information available on the internet about this case, as it happened in 1997, before electronic news was really a thing. I couldn't even find a photograph of the perpetrator. So, JP Pyromaniac, if you're listening, pop me a selfie there, please. Right. So before I invite any other serial killers to send me selfies, let's get into episode 29, The Jeppy Pyromaniac. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, Please see the helpline information on our show notes. Jeppy's Town and Bertram's are neighbouring suburbs on the eastern edge of Johannesburg's central business district. There was a time when these suburbs were just like any other in South Africa. But in the 90s, as drugs and crime started to become more prevalent in South Africa, these two suburbs were hard hit by gangs, drug dealers, and unemployment. While many of the original residents remained, 
They were no longer the safe, friendly neighbourhoods that they'd grown up in. Captain Mike van Aert of the South African Police Service would later say that due to the hardships the residents of these areas endured, they had become quite insular and distrustful of police. As a result, when major crimes occurred in the area, it was highly unlikely that community members would speak out. To try and combat this, Captain Mike Van Aert, who was at that time assigned to the JP Detective Unit, developed a network of informants within the community. These were people who were involved in criminal activities themselves and either cooperated with police as a way of receiving lenient treatment in their own cases or provided information in exchange for money. These informants would prove to be vital when Van Art found himself tracking a serial killer in the area. At 6am on Saturday the 30th of August 1997, a group of children were playing in a park in Bertrams. The park had sadly become a makeshift dumping ground, and it wasn't uncommon to find piles of rubble, including discarded household items, in the park. The children approached one such pile, which was topped by a mattress, and had been burned. They may have thought that the still-steaming pile could hold some treasures for salvage, but what they found could not have been more different. As the children lifted the mattress, they discovered the horrifically burned remains of a human being. Police were called, and detectives from the Jeppe police station, including Mike Van Aert, attended the scene. It would take several hours to methodically investigate the cordoned off scene, sifting through the burn pile and ensuring that they secured every piece of evidence. While the police worked, a crowd of onlookers gathered, and Van Art would later discover that he was being watched by the killer. The victim was identified as 35 year old William Crichton. William struggled with alcoholism, and his wife had recently divorced him, and he'd moved in with his parents in the Bertrams area. He worked at a local hardware store, and was due to collect his paycheck when the store opened that day. It appeared that William had been on his way home from an evening out, when he took a shortcut across the park, pausing to light a cigarette as he walked. It would later emerge that as he drew in the first breath of that cigarette, a young man had approached him and asked him for one. William had handed over a cigarette and his lighter, and within seconds he was ambushed. The young man had attacked him with a brick, pummeling him about the head until he lay unconscious on the ground. He then pulled down his trousers, torn off his underpants, and sexually assaulted him. The killer used a torn piece of cloth to strangle his victim to death. He then lay the mattress on top of him and set it alight. Although the perpetrator would never admit to doing so, 
Profilers would later state that he would likely have masturbated while he watched the fire burn. The scene that Van Art came upon was horrific. The man's face was bloodied and severely beaten. The heat of the fire had caused muscle shrinkage, and the victim's limbs were strangely contorted as a result. His wallet and shoes had been stolen, and nearby lay his glasses, a cigarette lighter, and a bloodied brick. Van Art would break the devastating news to William Crichton's parents later that day. Their son would not be coming home. He would barely have time to get his investigation ramped up, though, before it happened again. 69-year-old Clarence Pretorius lived in Bertram's retirement home, just across the road from the park in which William Crichton was murdered. The complex consisted of freestanding double units, which housed a residence on each side, and had a communal bathroom for the units in between. On the 2nd of September 1997, just three days after he'd watched with interest as police descended on the park opposite him, attending to a gruesome murder scene, Clarence stepped outside of his unit for a cigarette. He suffered with insomnia, and when it was difficult to sleep, he passed the time by smoking outside. It was 3 a.m. when he struck his lighter and inhaled his cigarette. A young man approached. Clarence knew him. His girlfriend lived in the retirement complex with her mother, and just days before, the young man had helped Clarence with a few chores around the house. The woman who lived in the adjoining unit reported that between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m., she had thought that she smelled smoke. She'd banged on the interjoining bathroom door, and when she heard a voice, she figured that everything must be okay. Her concern was that Clarence had fallen asleep with the cigarette in his hand, but if she was hearing someone speaking, she reasoned, he was awake and would sort it out. She went back to bed. Minutes later, another neighbour heard a loud bang. He didn't immediately investigate either. It must be understood that it was still dark at this point, and these were elderly, vulnerable people. The only thing that would be earned by them investigating would probably be them getting hurt themselves. This was also not a high-end retirement home, and they didn't have security to call either. As soon as daylight dawned, the neighbour who'd heard the bang ventured out to investigate. Outside of Clarence's unit, he found a pool of blood and one of Clarence's shoes. He knocked on his neighbour's door and got no response. The neighbour then let himself into Clarence's unit and within seconds discovered a scene that would haunt him forever. Clarence was covered in a burned duvet, but there was no doubt that the man was dead. Police arriving on the scene would acknowledge that Clarence had first been attacked outside. He'd been beaten with a brick, 
and then dragged indoors. His attacker had then stabbed him in his heart and slit his throat while Clarence lay on his bed. He then pulled down his pants, tore off his underpants and sexually assaulted him. He sprayed the bed with insect repellent, presumably to use as an accelerant, and set the bed alight, covering him with duvet and setting that alight too. The bang that the neighbour had heard was the can of insect repellent exploding in the fire. Van Ott found Clarence lying on his stomach when he arrived. The murder weapon was not left on the scene, and a small television set had been stolen. Van Ott had no doubt that he was dealing with the same perpetrator. The scenes were less than 300 metres apart, and the M.O. was identical. It was at this time that he decided to call in a profiler with significant experience in serial offences, Mickey Pistorius. Pistorius would say in her book that the crime scene photographs she was provided with were some of the most gruesome she had seen in her career. For a woman who had worked on the Station Strangler case, as well as Moses Sotoli's crimes, and attended some of those scenes in person, that is certainly saying something. While Pistorius worked on her profile, Van Art started to patrol the area in the early hours of the morning in an unmarked vehicle, hoping that his killer would be out stalking his next victim and he could apprehend him. Pistorius had told him in no uncertain terms that with the short period of time between the first two murders, there was no doubt that if he wasn't caught soon, someone else would lose their life. Mickey Pistorius's profile noted that the attacks had both happened just before sunrise, and that each had likely lasted no longer than 20 minutes from start to finish. She said that it was likely that the perpetrator did not appear threatening to the victims, or that they knew him, as he was able to get close enough to them to carry out his blitz attack, which disabled them before they could shout for help. She indicated that the perpetrator likely lived within walking distance of the crime scenes, and had probably watched the fires burn, and became sexually aroused by it. Serial killers are often triggered to kill by events in their lives, and Pistorius considered that the perpetrator may have recently lost his job. The first murder was committed around payday, and both were committed at a time in the morning when the perpetrator wouldn't have had sufficient time to clean up and get to work on time if he worked a regular job. Despite offenders of this nature often having a relatively low IQ, Pistorius believed that the JP pyromaniac, as he was dubbed, had at least an average IQ, as he had been sophisticated enough to pick vulnerable victims, and he'd also thought to remove the knife from the second crime scene. Pistorius classed the JP pyromaniac as a disorganized offender, the attacks were opportunistic and largely unplanned. 
he had likely travelled on foot, as was common with disorganised serial killers. She also felt that the man likely came from a dysfunctional background and had been sexually abused as a child. As an adult, he was probably not very successful and may live with one or both of his parents. The profile considered that the family members he lived with likely had no interest in his comings and goings, and he could therefore do as he pleased, and easily conceal his actions from them. Pistorius was certain that the offender would have taken trophies from the scene, and he would use them to relive the events and reinforce his fantasies, which at this point had become more important to him than real life. Pistorius believed that the offender knew someone that lived at Bertram's retirement home, as this would account for his coming and going at odd times of the night, in order to find these opportunistic victims. She also assured Van Art that the offender would insert himself into the investigation, and perhaps even call in anonymous tips. This would not be because he had any respect for the police, as in this case, Pistorius believed the opposite to be true. But it would be because he enjoyed being the centre of attention for the first time, and he would want to get as close to that as possible. Although the victims had been sexually assaulted, they did not appear to have been raped, and no anal tearing was present. It appeared that the perpetrator had been satisfied with groping at the victim's genitals and hadn't felt the need to rape them in order to attain satisfaction. The victimology also showed that neither man had been homosexual, and as such, this discounted a sexual tryst gone wrong. Pistorius believed that the offender gained his sexual satisfaction from the act of setting the fire and watching it burn. This was his sexual element, and the reason that he didn't feel the need to rape. This predilection to setting fires for psychological motives is called pyromania. I'll discuss this in further detail later in the episode, as it's a rare and interesting paraphilia. 25 days after the attack, another victim was being stalked. Alexander Landsberg was a 50-year-old single man who lived on his own in a flat in West Park, Pretoria. On the evening of the 27th of September 1997, he was sitting in a nearby pub enjoying a drink when he was approached by a young man. The man asked if he would buy him a drink, and Alexander agreed. The pair sat and chatted for a while, and the young man explained that he'd been kicked out of his house and needed a place to stay. Alexander offered to let him stay at his flat. Back at the flat, an intoxicated Alexander was easy prey for the younger, stronger man. He retrieved a knife from Alexander's kitchen and stabbed the man 47 times. He then placed a pile of clothes on top of his body and set it alight. 
he stole several items from Alexander's home, loaded them into the victim's vehicle, and also took his dog. Although there was evidence of sexual activity on the scene, there would be conflicting information about whether this was consensual or forced. Alexander's body was discovered the next day. The responding investigator, Inspector Clarson, of Pretoria Central Police Station, pressed redial on the victim's phone. He got through to one Anne-Marie Fenter, a resident of Kimberley, who said she didn't know Alexander Landsberg, but she had received a call from that number the previous night. The telephone call had been from her son, 24-year-old Jan Adrian van der Westeisen. He had told her that he'd done something terrible and he needed her help. Within hours, he'd arrived at her home in Kimberley, in a vehicle that she didn't know. He had dropped off a dog that she'd never seen before and asked her to look after it until his return. He then told her that he was headed to Durban. Captain Mike van Aert became aware of the murder in Pretoria almost immediately. He and Inspector Clarsen met and compared scenes with the help of Mickey Pistorius. The murder of Alexander Landsberg was almost identical in nature to that of Clarence Pretorius, and similar in nature to the other linked murder of William Crichton. Van Aert and Pistorius were sure that they had their man. Now they just had to find him. With assistance from the Durban police, Jan van der Westeisen was arrested and returned to Johannesburg on the 21st of October 1997. He was questioned by Van Art and Pistorius, and he admitted to having murdered Alexander Landsberg in Pretoria. He claimed that the man had angered him because he'd offered him a place to stay only on the condition that he had sex with him. This claim could never be proven or disproven. Despite this admission, Van der Westeisen denied having been involved in the two Bertrams murders. No matter what they tried, he adamantly denied it. The detective and the profiler were convinced that he had committed all three murders. He fit the profile perfectly. He had clearly had lifelong pyromania, as he even had burn scars on his head, where he'd attempted to set himself alight on several occasions. He also had a significant criminal record for thefts and robberies, and he had set his cell in Kimberley Prison alight while serving a sentence there. Van der Westeisen was also very good at escaping, and on the 20th of November, he escaped from police holding cells in Pretoria West. A manhunt ensued, and his picture was splashed all over the newspapers. Despite this, he had managed to flag down a passing motorist and hitched a ride. The driver of the vehicle got talking to the young man, who said that he was looking for a job, and they agreed that they would meet the next day at a shopping mall 
to discuss how the driver of the vehicle might be able to offer him a job. When the motorist returned home that night, he picked up the daily newspaper and the image of the young man who'd just been in his car immediately caught his eye. Now, if this isn't a cautionary tale about why you shouldn't pick up hitchhikers, then I don't know what is. The motorist, feeling lucky to have escaped with his life, contacted police, and a trap was set for the following day. When Jan van der Verstaisen arrived at the local mall to meet his prospective new employer, police pounced and he was rearrested. In questioning, despite being fully aware that he would likely get a life sentence for the murder of Alexander Landsberg, van der Verstaisen still refused to admit his involvement in the Bertrams' murders. Van Aert and Pistorius were stumped. Every interrogation technique that they had tried had failed, and there was insufficient physical evidence to tie the man to those murders. So, although they highly doubted the possibility that there could be two pyromaniacs on the loose at the same time, Van Aert left van der Westhuizen to the mercy of the courts and continued with his investigation. For six long months, Captain Mike Van Aert worked any and all leads and tried to use informant network to identify any new information either linking van der Westhuizen to the Bertrams' murders or to identify a new suspect. In June 1998, his hard work and tireless efforts paid off when an informant gave him a piece of information. The lead was a long shot, but it involved an unsolved murder that had taken place in the same park in Bertrams six years before. The possibility that it was linked to the Jeppy Pyromaniac series was slim, as the victim was a different race from the others, and there was no evidence of a fire. The victim had been beaten to death with a brick, though. His pants had been pulled down, and he was stabbed to death with a broken bottle. Despite fingerprints being available on the weapon, which had remained at the scene, the case had remained unsolved. Fun arts at this point would take what he could get, though and if it means he could solve any murder, that would be a bonus. The name that he was given by the informant was Norman Hopkirk. 25-year-old Hopkirk lived with his parents, and when Van Aert saw the name of the block of flats they lived in, his jaw hit the floor. Car House was a block of flats that overlooked the park, in which the 1992 case and the murder of William Crichton had taken place. Hopkirk was not living with his parents when Van Aert looked him up, though. He was in jail. Shortly after the murder of Clarence Pretorius, Norman Hopkirk had been arrested, tried and sentenced in a neighbouring area on a manslaughter charge, as well as a robbery charge neither of which seemed to be related to the Jeppy Pyromaniac cases. He had already been arrested when Alexander Landsberg was killed in Pretoria. 
Von Art ran Norman Hobkirk's fingerprints against the prints on the broken glass bottle, and they came back as a match. He visited Hopkirk in prison, where he was serving his eight-year sentence for manslaughter, and interviewed him. Norman Hopkirk confessed to the murder of the unidentified man in 1992. He claimed that he had been walking through the park with a friend, when a group of men had tried to attack and rob them. They had managed to escape, but later he'd returned and found one of the men there on his own. He'd beaten the man about the head with a brick and stabbed him with a broken bottle. He said that he had then gone home and phoned in an anonymous tip to police about the man's body in the park. When police arrived, he'd watched them from the balcony of his parents' flat. The victim had still been clinging to life when they found him, but by the time he arrived at hospital, he was deceased. When questioned about the murders of William Crichton and Clarence Pretorius, Hopkirk initially denied his involvement, but then admitted that he had committed those murders too. He had known Clarence Pretorius relatively well, and he'd seen William Crichton in the area, so they knew each other by sight. Interestingly, he had no problem admitting the vicious acts that he'd committed, but struggled to admit having set the fires. He claimed that he hadn't dragged the mattress on top of William, despite a witness coming forward to say that they'd seen him do so. He denied setting the mattress alight, and also denied setting Clarence Pretorius's bed alight, claiming that a candle that was next to his bed had fallen over and accidentally set the bed alight. An arson expert who studied the scene stated that there was no evidence of candle wax in the fire. Clarence also had no reason to use a candle. He had electricity for light, and he had a lighter to light his cigarettes with. Mickey Pistorius interviewed Norman Hobkirk too, and was fascinated to find that he fit her profile as perfectly as Jan van der Westeisen had. She noted in her book that these two men could have been brothers. Norman Hobkirk was the son of an alcoholic father, who also had a significant criminal record and a domineering and abusive mother. He was molested by both his father and his cousins when he was a child, and he was removed from his parents' care on several occasions. At many points during his youth, he'd been in orphanages, reformatories, and in prison, where he alleged that he had suffered further sexual abuse. As a child and teenager, he began to self-harm by cutting himself, as this released his pain temporarily. As an adult, he realized that he was strong enough to release this pain onto his victims instead. Hopkirk had completed grade 10 at school and then started work at an abattoir. He was fired from this job and then he started working as a truck driver, but he developed a serious drinking problem and ended up being fired from that job too. 
this was the trigger that Mickey Pistorius had believed existed in her profile. I found Hopkirk's refusal to admit that he started the fires is very interesting. He did say that with both of the 1997 murders, the flick of the victim's cigarette lighters as they lit their cigarettes had been the proverbial and literal spark to his actions. Hobkirk's pyromania had been evident throughout his youth, and he too had several scars from where he'd burned himself in the past. His mother would relate that, as a child, he would repeatedly bang his head against a wall, and he'd set several fires in fields, and had an obsession for burning items in metal drums. The reason that this case is so fascinating is that pyromania is actually extremely rare, and for two pyromaniac killers to be operating in such a small area at the same time is almost unheard of. According to Mickey Pistorius's book, Profiling Serial Killers and Other Criminals, pyromania is a sexual disorder in which a person achieves sexual satisfaction by setting and observing fires. She notes that in almost all cases, the offender will gladly talk about any other crime they've committed, but will avoid admitting to the fire element of the crime. I guess, in a way, it's almost like a so-called normal person, not wanting to discuss their sex life with just anyone. They hold their pyromania close as it's an intimate part of them. Pyromaniacs are not the same as arsonists. Arsonists will have motivations around greed, revenge, ideology, and sometimes just pure malice, while the pyromaniac has a far deeper psychological motive behind their fire setting. Pyromania can be identified when the fire setting is deliberate and purposeful, occurs on more than one occasion, and the person experiences tension prior to the fire, and then a release and instant pleasure after setting the fire. The psychological motive for pyromaniacs does not always seem to be sexual. Sometimes it's just an uncontrollable urge, similar to what serial killers seem to experience before they kill. Pyromaniacs may even experience physical symptoms in the build-up to this urge, such as headaches, heart palpitations, and entering a trance-like state. Pyromania often starts in childhood, and while there is no definitive cause, it can often be related to a child experiencing sexual arousal at the same time as a fire is present, and the brain links the two. This, of course, is a very simplistic explanation, and the true roots of pyromania is as complex as any other mental disorder. In childhood, pyromania will often be accompanied by bedwetting and the abuse of animals, but all three are not always present. Pyromaniacs will often have below-average IQs, resent authority, and become delinquents often turning to drugs and alcohol to self-medicate. Most pyromaniacs 
have no intention to kill, although they will be aware that the setting of a fire could lead to the death of innocent people. The typical pyromaniac profile, as assembled by FBI profilers, is a white male between the ages of 16 and 28. They will often present with some form of physical defect and will adjust poorly to education and consistently underachieve. Pyromaniacs often rank high on psychopath tests and will have dysfunctional childhoods and families. They're often socially awkward and struggle to maintain long-term relationships. Many pyromaniacs are sexually maladjusted, and the sexual relationship with fire is a chicken-and-egg situation in my view. Do they become sexually maladjusted because they've created this sexual obsession with fire? Or does the obsession with fire develop because they cannot function normally in a sexual context? While active pyromania is rare, the combination of pyromania and serial killing is even more rare. One of the most infamous pyromaniac serial killers is probably the so-called Son of Sam, who murdered 14 people between 1976 and 1977 in New York. David Richard Berkowitz was a little different from our Norman Hobkirk, though, as he didn't set his victims alight. His fires and his murders were separate, but he did set more than 1,400 fires in his lifetime. Berkowitz was also arrested at the age of 25. Norman Hobkirk was charged with three counts of murder, and his trial started in the Johannesburg High Court in 1999. He attempted to defend his actions by claiming that the two Bertram's victims had made sexual advances towards him. There was absolutely no evidence to support these claims, and the judge dismissed this as a defence. The fact that all of his victims were vulnerable and were no match in strength also means that if they had made advances he didn't like, all he needed to do was walk away. Mickey Pistorius testified on behalf of the state and told the judge that she had classified Hobkirk as a serial killer and that, in her opinion, he had very little chance of being rehabilitated. In September 2000, Norman Hobkirk was found guilty on all three counts. He was given two life sentences for the Bertrams murders and 20 years for the 1992 murder of the unidentified man. While the judge said that he had found it difficult to sentence someone and not give them any hope of ever getting out on parole, he recommended that any future parole board take into account the fact that expert witnesses had testified that it would be impossible to rehabilitate the man, so releasing him on parole at any stage would only set in motion a ticking time bomb to his next crime. There is, unfortunately, no information available about the manslaughter case which had landed Hopkirk in jail shortly after he murdered Clarence Pretorius. But I would be very interested to know the details of that crime. 
because, essentially, it may well be part of the series. And if his other crimes had been known at the time of that trial, he would likely not have been charged with manslaughter. That is, of course, pure speculation on my part. But I think it's safe to say that the serial killer that was Norman Hobkirk had at least four victims. I am sure that this was investigated, but I'd also love to know where he was and what he was doing between 1992 and 1997. Did he really not kill anyone for five years, and then suddenly kill two people in the space of three days? It is possible, of course, because the two sets of murders seem to line up with the two jobs that he lost, one at the abattoir and then his truck driving job. I guess we'll never know if there are more Hobkirk victims out there. In his own trial, Jan van der Westeisen was sentenced to 30 years in prison for the vicious murder of Alexander Landsberg. Although it is a strange coincidence that both these men were killing at the same time, it really was a stroke of luck that it happened the way it did. Sure, Jan didn't do a great job of covering up his crime, so he likely wouldn't have been very successful as a serial killer, but the fact that there was a pyromaniac serial killer roaming at the time certainly contributed to a swift arrest in his case, and hopefully saved future victims. In 2002, an article was published in which the South African police services raised concerns about the efficacy of parole boards in determining parole for serial offenders. Now, there's something about parole in this country that was recently pointed out to me, and I've been guilty of incorrectly expressing how parole works in this country. I've often used the phrase, apply for parole, because, well, that's the narrative we get fed by mainstream media. But in South Africa, our offenders do not apply for parole. Our justice system works in such a way that at a specific point in time, depending on the length of sentence and various other circumstances, offenders will automatically come up for parole consideration. They do not apply for their parole to be heard. I found that interesting and I wanted to clarify that, and I'm grateful to the listener who pointed this out to me. I'm not sure if she wants her name to be mentioned, but you know who you are, so thank you. So the concern that the SAPS raised was essentially that they were arresting and investigating serial killers, and these people were being successfully prosecuted. But there was often a disconnect in the system, and however many years or decades down the line, when an offender became eligible for parole, the parole board in question wouldn't necessarily know the full extent of their crimes. The SAPS identified a group of 10 serial killers, which included Norman Hobkirk, and used them as examples, saying that with the system as it was at that time, the possibility existed that these men could make it to a parole hearing and have a parole board not hear the full extent of their crimes. 
especially important is testimony by expert witnesses, like Mickey Pistorius, who deemed such offenders impossible to rehabilitate. Norman Hopkirk is certainly not one of the most infamous serial killers in South African history. I'm sure that before today, many of you had never heard his name. And maybe that's a good thing. Giving notoriety to people like Hopkirk is a dangerous thing. Another reason that he's not particularly well known is because of his relatively low victim count in comparison with someone like Moses Sotoli. Again, I'm truly glad that police officers such as Captain Mike Van Art exist to bring people like this to justice before they reach Sotoli's numbers. Having been in jail on the manslaughter charge alone, Hopkirk would likely only have served about four years, and then by 2001, he would have been back out on the street, ready to kill again. There's a sad commonality in all serial killer cases, and that's that we all know the serial killer's name, but we can't name a single victim. So as I do in all serial killer cases, I will finish off this episode with the names of the victims, who were honest men, just living out their lives, some struggling with the difficulties that life brings, but who all had hope, until the day that a young man approached them for a cigarette, and in the light of a flame, they lost their lives. William Crichton Clarence Pretorius The two unidentified men And by association, Alexander Landsberg You are remembered. Thank you for listening to episode 29, The Jeppy Pyromaniac. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe on the app that you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I usually release a full episode every second week with a mini-sode in between. But during lockdown, I'm releasing full episodes every week in order to give you some extra content to keep you busy. I'll be back next Friday with a new episode. Until then, stay safe, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.